Well, good evening, everyone. Mission needs maturity. It does. I mean, when you, uh, many of you will know this already, but if we just bring up my title slide again, you'll, you'll see here that I am the director of mission here at Christchurch. It's a great privilege and an honour to be in that role, but it, it just essentially means that my job is to direct the hearts of our church, from our church, out into our suburbs, out into our community as well. And that means that we want to reach and enrich our community as we call people to love Jesus. We want our people to catch the vision of a loving, faithful, righteous and just God who actually exists. A loving God who reaches out to people to connect with them. We want people who uh, realise that they are out of step as sinners, but recognise that God has done an amazing invitation that we might come back into his family. We want people to be staggered at the astonishing death of the Son of God and be amazed at the preposterous rising of dead from the Lord Jesus Christ. We want people to know their forgiveness in Jesus and come to him. And we want people who have never been to church before to come to church. And those who used to come to church but have given it away for a time to come back again and meet God who loves them and cares for them very much. It's like on a Sunday as a church, what we do is we, we kind of get together and we charge our torches together so that we're out to, to go out into our suburb during the week and to light up our suburb with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that if we want to be on mission as members of Christ Church, then we need to be convicted about what we truly believe. It means that we need to have received the gospel ourselves, to have believed on it ourselves, to understand it and to know it, and then to be able to live it out and to speak it out and to act it out to anyone in our lives. Mission needs maturity. Mission needs Christians who are growing in their conviction about the truth of the gospel. And in our psalm today, King David is convicted about two essential truths. One about the world and one about God as well. And we would do well today to take these convictions and have them deep in our hearts. First conviction comes from verses 1 to 4. And David is truly convicted that mankind is sinful. And the second conviction comes in verses 5 to 12, where he is convicted that God is loving and faithful. Now today, in today's psalm, it's not hard to understand what's going on. But as with all convictions, it's important that we take this on board and seek to live it out. It'd be so great if you could have open uh, Psalm 36. If you're watching at home and you don't have a Bible as well, just go to the display window. Just below that, there should be a link to a Bible gateway passage, which will have the reading there that you can follow along with as well. And if for any reason, if anybody in the room would like a transcript of what I'm saying as well, just raise your hand, stay in your seat, because Mandy will come and uh, hand that to you as well, if for whatever reason that's helpful. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonder and joy it is of having your word. Please convict our hearts now that we might see your truth 
and know our Lord and King Jesus. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, first conviction, verse, verses 1 to 4, mankind is sinful. Now, first of all, it's important to know that whenever we talk about sin or the wickedness uh, as Christian peoples, we, people, we need to do so in a way that is humble. Because we know that it is only by grace that any of us uh, can be saved. And the author of this psalm, King David, he, he shows us that that's his heart as well. In the title of the psalm, which we affectionately call verse zero, this is what David says. He says, for the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord. Notice that David isn't a king. He is. Notice that he isn't the anointed one. He is that as well. He just refers to himself as a servant. And that expression is pretty unusual when it comes to King David. It only applies to him at one other point in the whole of the Old Testament. And it's in the heading of Psalm 18, where it says, For the director of music, of David the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So David is approaching this psalm as somebody who is humble and who is full of thanks for God, as we will see, because he knows that what has been given to him has been delivered to him uh, by God. And that's important to know that he's humble because he has some pretty punchy things to say. Have a look with me at verse 1. David says, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of the Lord in their eyes. And we're not told how David received this message, whether it was a divine revelation or whether he just became convicted about this from his own reading of the word of God himself. But the message that David has here is entirely consistent with the rest of the Old Testament. He says there is great sinfulness in the hearts of the wicked. Now in the Old Testament, the word wicked is used often and refers to people who are wicked from their heart and are active in their disobedience from God. You see, the wicked do evil things. And when they find out that the Lord is against those things, even then they continue to do those things which displease God. The word wicked is first used in connection with the people of Sodom in Genesis chapter 13. And it comes up again in Genesis 19 with the townships of Sodom and Gomorrah and the famous story. As we continue reading through the Old Testament, we're told that wickedness arouses God's anger. And Job says that it, wickedness places people under God's judgment. The Lord himself at the dedication of the temple tells us that wicked people are walking in the opposite direction for him and that they need to turn back to God and ask for forgiveness. That's in that famous uh, passage from 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7. When we get to the uh, Psalms, the wicked are spoken of uh, from the very first Psalm as well. You might remember these lines uh, from Psalm 1 verse 4. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. You see, the, in the Old Testament, the wicked were very often the enemies of Israel, people who were outsiders, who wanted the nation of Israel destroyed, and who openly mocked 
the Lord. But there are stories right through the Old Testament where there were people from within Israel who were also wicked in their ways. Irrespective of who the wicked were, whether they were a Jew or a Gentile, we see that the wicked have sin firmly embraced in their lives. Now, the Bible has dozens of words for sin. And whether it's shaking your fist at God or whether it's taking the things that belong to God and giving them to created things, whether it's rebellion against God or whether it's turning away from God, whatever the expression, the Bible has dozens and dozens of ways of describing sin. The wicked, from their hearts outward, embrace sin as part of their lives. And David shows us here in this psalm what the key attribute to their sin is. There is no fear of God in their eyes. That's poetry I reckon we can understand even today. It's not hard to see people even all over Sydney in 2020. They have no fear of any consequences in their lives from God. One of the most famous American fashion labels right now is called Fear of God. And so there'll be people walking around who have no fear of God, walking around with this expression emblazoned sort of ironically on their chest. Several years ago, a famous South African preacher named Frank Retief was asked the question about what the difference was between Johannesburg, where his church was, and Sydney. He was at a, a Katoomba convention at the time. And he replied, Johannesburg is a very dangerous place. And there is a fear of God all around. When I come to Sydney, it's like a postcard. And I see there is no fear of God in this city. I reckon what he said all those years ago is still true of our culture and our environment even today. People who don't love God don't care about God and they don't fear him in any way. It's a sobering thought to think that Maybe if you have never trembled at the idea of the judgment of God, then maybe you're not a believer yourself. I mean, David is talking about wicked people in this part. And I say those words to you are trembling myself because that was me. For the first 19 years of my life, I did not fear God. My son Oscar was actually asking about this uh, just this week. He said, Dad, why, why weren't you a Christian when you were in high school? And I said to him, it's because I was a sinner. I knew about God. I'd heard about God. I had no excuses. I just didn't think he was that important in my life. As I read verse 1 in our passage today, in light of the rest of the Bible, I must say, I was wicked. I was a sinner. And verse 2 perfectly describes my experience as a sinner. David says, In their own eyes, the wicked flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. Sinful people are so sinful that they don't even think that they're sinful. They're blinded to their real condition. That was me. I thought I was a pretty good guy. I did some bad things. But on the whole, I was pretty good. But that's the thing with sin. It's selfish. Selfish is just one of the dozens of ways that the Bible speaks about sin. It's taking our eyes off God and focusing our eyes on ourselves. 
I read an illustration once about how we can know that we're all about ourselves. It said, take out a group photo from the past that you're in. Who's the first person you try to look for in the photo? It's always yourself, isn't it? Sin is uh, focusing our hearts and our eyes on ourselves. You know, everything I did, every bad thing I did, I reckon I could justify when I was a sinner. I could explain it away. I could blame someone else. I had a hundred excuses. That's the terrible thing about sin. If we never detect or hate our sin, then we'll never come to God asking for help. And so we'll remain in our sinful ways. And you see that in verses 3 and 4. That when we're in sin, David says, it's all day and all night, whether we're up or whether we're resting, whether we're active or whether we're supposed to be trusting God and getting our rest. Sin is always active. It's in our hearts. It bubbles up in our words, says David, in our actions, in our plans as well, on and on and on. And we know in King David's life that he would have known this wickedness as he evaded people who tried to capture him. As David overheard plots and plans against him and the kingdom, he would have understood wickedness. When he, saw, he would have seen at first hand the wickedness of his enemies. And in a great moment of sadness, he would have seen sinfulness in his own heart as well. And just wait till we get to next week's psalm, Psalm 51, and the terrible and tragic story of David and Bathsheba. Jesus would have known about the pain of wickedness all around him as well. He would have read Psalm 36 as part of his meditations on God's word. And the Lord Jesus would later inspire the Apostle Paul to write the words from our second reading today. Remember he said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And then at the end, he quotes Psalm 36 and says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who are the wicked ultimately? Well, ultimately they are the people who do not trust in Jesus, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Yet in his ministry, we see Jesus' heart. He says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Lost is one of the many ways that the Bible uses to describe our condition of sin. And Jesus' response to our wickedness was to come to us, to seek us out, to find us so that he could save us when we were lost. You see, Jesus doesn't look down on a sinner. He wants our eyes to look up towards God. And as these words in Psalm 36 pierce our souls, we must be convicted, like Jesus, of the sinfulness of our world. It's not so that we as Christians can look down on anybody, but we look across to them, to our peers, and we can let them know that we've received the grace of Jesus in our lives. And I reckon that there is a particular challenge for us in our day and age as well. I mean, there's a pressure, and you feel this pressure, no doubt. There's a pressure in our community to not say anything negative about anybody else. When we do, it's construed 
as being hate. It's hating on someone to say anything in a negative way. Now, obviously, you can call someone a sinner and show you just despise them. But Christians are not to have any part of that. I mean, David calls himself a servant in this psalm. We must be servants of the Lord as well, humble and thankful to God for what we have. But the reason we speak so forcefully about sin and its consequences is because sin is like a cancer that takes over a person and leads them away from God forever. I mean, just look at the way that David uses uh, the words to describe sin as wickedness in these first four verses. It goes to show that the world and the Bible have two different questions that they're asking because of the way they see humanity. You see, the world says, everyone's good. How can God judge anyone? But the Bible says, no, everyone is bad. How can God save anyone? Sinners are in massive trouble before God, and they are in need of a massive rescue. And that is what Jesus gives. Brothers and sisters, if we never talk to our friends about sin, then they will never be truly convicted that Jesus is the one who saves them from sin. Any faith signs they might seem to show in their life will simply shrivel up and die at the first sign of test or trouble. Mission needs maturity. And maturity in the faith must give rise to a love for others. We must be convicted that mankind is sinful and needs Jesus. In the last eight verses of the psalm, David then turns from the sinfulness of the world to the love and the faithfulness of God. You see, as convicted as David is about the wicked, he is even more convinced about the character and the provision and the protection of God. Have a look at verse 5. David says, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. See, if the life of the sinner is constantly looking at yourself, then the life of the believer is lifting our eyes and looking towards God. And that's exactly what David does in this section. You notice that the name for God changes at this point? Where the wicked had no fear of God, the general big name for the creator God, who they don't know. Well, here David now uses the personal name for God. Small capital letters, Lord. The name Yahweh. David is saying, I know my God personally, and he knows me. And I know his character and what he's like. If you know your Old Testament, you'll hear that in the way that David talks about God, it's very familiar. You see, if you were a faithful Jew and you heard David speak like this with God's personal name and his character of love and faithfulness and justice, you would have been instantly reminded of the words of Yahweh when he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai after he'd saved his people out of Egypt. Do you remember the famous scene? Where at Mount Sinai, God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock. 
And he passes by Moses and he proclaims his goodness and character. So on one level, David is indeed proclaiming the greatness of God to the heights and to the depths as well. God's character of love and faithfulness, it is everywhere and it fills everything. And it's beautiful poetry as well. I mean, if you let the the muscles in your face relax and you look up, you can't help but have your mouth open wide when you look up towards God. That's the sort of awe that King David has when he thinks about God, when he talks about and he proclaims the God that he knows. He's praising his God to the heavens, even down into the depths as well. God is great. Now, for sure, that's, that's what David is doing. But as mature Christians, uh, we must see that David is doing something even deeper here as well. You see, by using God's name and his character in this precise way, he's recalling to mind the God who saves people. I mean, just listen to the words of that famous story from Exodus 34 and hear in them David's deliberate choice of words. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the God that David knows and the one who knows him. And he's convicted that this loving and faithful God has the ability to forgive the wicked and save them from their sin. When we throw forward into the New Testament, we know who also understood this perfectly. It's Jesus. And as the faithful and loving Son of God, Jesus explained it this way to his disciples. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, believers can praise God for his character in every part of creation, and we should. But we must join with David in this psalm in praising our God for the fullness of his character in saving the wicked from their sin. You see, this was the character that was on display as Jesus went to the cross. He was abounding in love and faithfulness to forgive wickedness. We must be convicted like David about the wickedness of humanity, but also about the goodness and faithfulness of God to be able to save. And that is why the gospel that we believe in is such good news We have the greatest news in the world to take to Gladesville and Putney and Ryde and all of our area. For every one of those dozens of ways that the Bible speaks about sin, there is a corresponding way we can talk about the work of Jesus in saving us from our sin. Consider these descriptions. Before we knew Jesus, we were unforgiven, but now we are forgiven. We were unholy, and now we're holy. We were unclean, now we're clean. We were unbelieving, and now we're believers. We were unrepentant, and now we repent of our sins. We were ungodly, but now we're godly. We were unsaved, and now we are saved. We used to be blind, 
and now we can see. We used to be deaf and now we can hear. We used to be slaves, but now we're free. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins, and now we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. We were once disobedient, and now we obey. We once didn't know God, and now we get to call him Father. We were once dirty, and now we're washed. We were once stained, and now we're pure. We once were in darkness, and now we're in light. We were once cursed, and now we were blessed. We were once wicked. But now we are loved by our Heavenly Father. We have the best news in the world. Brothers and sisters, are you convicted about this? We must be convicted that this good news is better than the worst bad news in the world and that our neighbours and our friends and our families, they need to hear it. You see, we can't expect those who have no fear of God to come to us and invite us to talk about it. But if we go to them, giving them a gentle gift, the wonderful gift from a loving and faithful God, a gentle gift of the gospel, then we are placing on them a gentle burden that they have to do something with the gift. They might, of course, reject it. Or the Bible might start to do what it always does and start to irritate and grind away and ask questions and make you curious. It might even lead people to being engaged or intrigued and to want to explore more. You see, how God works on a person, that's up to God. But our job is to be convicted of the truth and to speak clearly and wonderfully about the love and faithfulness of God to live it out in front of our families and friends as well. And certainly we see that living out in the way that David finishes the rest of the verses in this psalm. You see, in verses 7 to 12, David praises his loving God for his great provision, and he prays for protection as well. Let's have a look at verse 7. It's a great line. David says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God! One of the joys of Sundays is that I get to meet with an internationals growth group, people who have another language background other than English. And today, as we looked at this very verse, it turns out that the word for unfailing in other language is loyal. David says, how priceless is your loyal love, O God. I mean, just say that line out loud. If you're at home, say the line out loud right now. And just imagine the joy that King David had while he wrote this down for the first time in the psalm. How great is your unfailing love, O God. The people he refers to in verse 7 refers to all of humanity, both the wicked and the righteous. You see, all people have access to what we could call the hospitality of God. All people can eat and drink from the abundance of creation, and God who's provided it all. I mean, if you think about it for a second, in this second right now, seven billion people just drew breath. And God provided for every single one of them. So God provides for all. But David, in this psalm, he recognizes that only those who love God will recognize that it is God behind everything. 
You see, when David was given refuge from his enemies, he knew that it was God who provided it. When there was a feast or a river to drink from, I mean, just think about God's amazing provision for his people through the desert. Forty years he provided food and drink for them in the deserted areas. Well, David knows it was the Lord who provided it to his people. And God is the one who gives a fountain of life, literally living water. An expression that Jesus is going to pick up through his ministry as well. You see, David recognizes in verse 9 that it is by God's light that we can understand any of it. He says, by your light, we can see light. And because he knows God, he can ask for God's protection against his enemies. If you want to follow through on the things he asks for his enemies, you might like to read in your own time into Psalm 37. 36 and 37 are connected psalms, both written by David. And in Psalm 37, you'll see the justice that he hopes for from God and the salvation he provides to his people. So Psalm 36 is a psalm of conviction. We are to be convicted of the humanity and the love, uh, convicted of the sinfulness of humanity and the love and faithfulness of God. And as God's people, those convictions are to come out in every part of our lives. We're supposed to be filled with humility and thankfulness. And it's supposed to be evident to anyone who could see our lives or hear our words. As Christians, our lives are supposed to be marked in such a way that people know that we've been touched by God. And so when a friend asks us a question, a why question about life, we might be able to help them with an answer that points them towards God only because God has introduced himself already to us. When somebody makes an accusation about the goodness of God, we're ready to push back against it because we know God. And because we know God is a generous provider, that he saved us and that he's given us everything in our lives, we are in turn free to be able to be generous with everything he's given us for the sake of those around us as well. When we're convicted about God's capacity, we will be equipped to light up our suburb with the good news about Jesus. Mission needs maturity. And may we grow deeper in our love for the loving and faithful God and live it out. How about we pray? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our Saviour Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We thank you that though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you have made us alive in Jesus because he has forgiven our sins. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have this great news to the whole of the world. And we ask, Father, that you would help charge our church with the responsibility and opportunity to have a disproportional gospel effect on our suburb. May the good news of your word go out from the, the saints here at your church, that people might see in our words and in our heart, in the way we live our lives, the way we have plans for our lives, that you are working we ask, Father, that you would uh, give us the ability to have such a strong witness in front of our friends that they will be intrigued to come to know why we believe what we believe. We pray, Father, that you would help us to love the people around us 
with a gospel love. And we ask, Father, that through our church here and the many churches who meet around our neighbor, neighborhood, we pray that there will be many people who come to know Jesus by your word and that they might seek to ask him for forgiveness and receive it as well. We ask, Father, that you would equip us this week for that great work. Show us where you'd want us to serve. Show us how you'd like us to speak. Thanks for this psalm of conviction, Father. Help us to be convicted now. In Jesus' name. Amen.